1: Hello and welcome to a new episode in New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Shair Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic Studies and we chat with its author. In the post 9 11 era in which Muslims in America have increasingly felt under the surveillance of the state, media, and the larger society, how have female Muslim students on US college campuses imagined, performed, and negotiated their religious lives and identities? That is the central question that animates Dr. Shabana Mir's dazzling new book, Muslim American Woman on Campus, Undergraduate Social Life and Identity, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014 and winner of the Outstanding Book Award by the National Association for Ethnic Studies. Dr. Mir is an anthropologist who received her PhD in Indiana University. She has worked at Oklahoma State University and at Millican University. In her book, Dr. Mir engages in a number of interlocking themes, such as the varied and at times competing understandings of Islam among female Muslim undergraduates, the haunting legacy of Orientalist discourse and practice on U.S. college campuses, questions of religious authority among Muslim students on campus, and contradictions of pluralism in U.S. higher education. Through a theoretically sophisticated and compelling ethnographic study, focused on the college experience of female Muslim undergraduates at George Washington University and Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., Dr. Mir brings into view the hopes, tensions, and aspirations that mark the intersection of their religious and academic and social lives on campus. Some of the specific issues analyzed in this book include female Muslim-American understandings of and attitudes towards alcohol culture on campus, clothing and the hijab, and questions of gender and sexual relations. Dr. Mir's incredibly nuanced study shows both the diversity and the complexity of the undergraduate experience for Muslim American students. This truly multidisciplinary book will be of much interest to not only scholars of Islam, American religion, gender, and anthropology, but also to anyone interested and invested in U.S. higher education. Here now is my conversation with Dr. Shabana Mir. Hello, Shabana. How are you?
0: I'm good, thank you. How are you, Sherly?
1: Very good. Thank you so much for your time, Shabana. As I just mentioned in the introduction uh, to this book, uh, really a delight to read uh, a fantastic book on a very important subject. And I particularly enjoyed the way uh, in which this book speaks to multiple audiences and fields, including Islamic studies, American studies, uh, U.S. higher education, the questions of anthropology. And, and it really brings together all these different concerns and fields in a very seamless fashion. Uh, so a very important and And very finely written book. Uh, Before we get to the uh, specifics of the book, we have a tradition on new books in Islamic studies that we begin with asking our authors of their journeys in Islamic studies, their academic background and journey, and how you became interested in the field uh, and how you came to write this particular book.
0: Yeah, um, I think one of the, f- the the first place that I should start from is that unlike many of my Desi-American friends, I'm a true immigrant. I was born in London, but my parents were one of those Pakistanis who decided not to stay in the West. Um, my family, while in London, had encounters with overt racism, and my mother was kind of anxious about the fact that as children, we just couldn't seem to properly recite the Quran. So I was six years old when we returned to Pakistan, and then I came to the U.S. as a graduate student to study education policy studies and then much to my surprise I ended up remaining here and becoming a citizen and so because really because um, of my own experiences I'm fascinated with immigration and how it shapes uh, individual and collective immigrant identities but also how it shapes both both uh, host and home cultures but at the same time you know that Immigration is also very much a religionizing phenomenon. I knew relatives who were very moderately religious or very liberal, became very religious after immigrating to uh, the United States or to Britain, uh, especially when their children reached puberty. So religion and immigration intersect um, very much. Um, as for myself, I describe myself as an anthropologist of religion, education, and gender. But I also position myself in the study of Islam and Muslims. I was raised in Lahore. And uh, pretty early, at the age of about uh, 14, 15, I became very drawn to the study of uh, Islam. And then I went through um, what I suppose would be called a rebellious period when I rejected the very kind of upwardly mobile westernizing materialism of my social class in, in Lahore and became, I guess, what you might call an Islamist. Uh, I was an a uh, for like nine years. And, um, uh, my, my discourse was very much framed by the very maldudi Jamaat type, um, type discourse. That's what I had most access to. Some years later, I met my, uh, Sufi Sheikh and I joined the Chishti uh, to which I belong. So I suppose in some ways it wouldn't be inaccurate to say that I am a border crosser in terms of both immigration uh, and religion and I'm particularly interested as a scholar in religious and spiritual experience in how religious identities are constructed and in how these identities intersect with political and cultural climates. So when I look at Muslim American college students um, uh, to take this example of my book, I focus on the Peculiar Development of Religious Muslim Identities Within American Culture.
1: So uh, to begin with a broad question uh, in relation to this particular book, how would you describe the major theoretical and conceptual concerns and objectives uh, that you set out in this uh, project?
0: That's a good question. I would say that I have a, I have uh, um, a set of goals or different sets of goals. So, for example, for one group of readers, I would say my goal is to convey that A, Muslim American college students and women are there, they exist, and that there is a rich and profound texture to Muslim American undergraduate women's lives on American campuses. And that is fascinating enough that you should want to know about it. On another level, that the demographic represented in this book, Muslim American undergraduate women, can actually serve as an exemplar or a model to help you understand the way that other similar population groups operate in social settings, whether they be uh, faith groups, ethnic minority groups, otherwise stigmatized groups, and I argue that all college students experience the power of stigma, In, in uh, speaking um, um, in relation to Irving Goffman, within a campus culture, and that this influence is not always a healthy one. Now, for other readers, I want them to know that Muslim American women are Americans, and also that they are Muslim, but in a dizzying variety of ways. Now, I don't mean that in the very trite sense of some Muslims are good Muslims and others are bad Muslims and some are religious and others are non-religious. I mean that religiosity and Muslim identity take uh, an infinite variety of forms in the lives of Muslim American women. So young women who identify as Muslim and as religious, they don't look all the same. They don't make all the same choices within youth cultural practices. And then I want to go on to say that while I'm interested in Muslim Americans and who who they are, I'm especially interested through them in another question, who is America, who do Americans think America is, and who do Americans think Muslims are? And a set of questions underneath that uh, in terms of where is America going in terms of its national character, how... Um, does America deal with being a multicultural and multi-faith society? And how does it want to perhaps interrogate its current models of dealing with uh, being a multicultural society? So these are a few of the major concerns in the book.
1: The focus of your book is on uh, female Muslim American students at Georgetown and George Washington University in, in Washington, D.C., Uh, Could you tell us something about uh, these uh, students whom you focus on? And also, could you tell us a bit about uh, how you went about organizing and conducting your ethnography and your research uh, while you were engaged in this project?
0: Oh, right. Uh, I'm going to start with ethnography first, because I just loved doing ethnography. It was exciting. It was intense and it was exhausting. It took every part of my being. Um, Now, In terms of this topic, in terms of this population focusing on Muslim students, I chose this population and this topic prior to September 11th. Uh, Most people who looked at my research um, assumed that I had done it um, uh, after September 11th, but September 11th only gave it an edge that it did not have before, and not in a good way, of course. When I first approached campus authorities to do this ethnography, they were not too happy about my research. And even uh, during negotiations, I was actually obliged to give up certain aspects of data collection, for example, um, classroom observations. Uh, In that context, in terms of being able to get access for ethnography, It helped a lot to have senior academics at these campuses, a few senior academics, who knew me uh, in order to get me the necessary approvals. Um, I had contact points for my approach for approval. Um, And the thing with this kind of ethnography was that I, I couldn't only go through one contact point. For example, I went through the campus authorities, and I did the IRB, and I went through the professors. But... In order to approach the Muslim students, there was another avenue that I had to approach. And I started through uh, the Muslim Student Association being, you know, kind of a, a representative, sort of a gatekeeper. Um, I, I approached them and asked them if, if it would be okay for me to observe and for me to um, essentially get access to uh, respondents through them. And they even they were a little bit uh, leery of a researcher coming in at that stage. You remember this is at a time where uh, Muslim student, Muslim college students were under a lot of surveillance and there was um, a lot of uh, FBI presence um, uh, whether, you know, um, whether always real or not but it, but it was there, uh, it was in the news um, and Muslim college students were very conscious of being watched uh, at all times. Though, even Even during my interviews I found that the war on terror shaped many of the silences uh, that I encountered in my interviews. Very often uh, at uh, at times asking these questions, um, very often it became like pulling teeth because people would sometimes uh, shut down and not want to talk. Uh, about these things. Um, now, th- who were these college students? They were a, b- a very broad variety of uh, Muslim college students. Um, of course, I started first with the Muslim Student Association. But as I talk about, and I talk about this in the book as well, uh, that I became very... Um, Uncomfortable with the fact that most of my most of my respondents were you know um, rather religious and somewhat affiliated with the Muslim Student Association and at the same time, I was aware that there were many Muslim students who were not even aware of the existence of a Muslim student association so Um, Sort of midway in the research, I kind of uh, changed tack and I uh, went looking for more, uh, essentially looking for people who were not affiliated with the MSA, who were not particularly religious, who were very culturally um, assimilated within uh, the mainstream campus. Um, And I feel like I was very successful in getting this very broad variety towards the end. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. I could have started out doing that, but um, but it was a very intense process. I mean, um, as I um, was doing this ethnography, ethnography is, ver- is very uh, is kind of like multitasking par excellence. Uh, I'm doing observations. I'm participating in social settings. I'm doing interviews. I'm examining the documents. All of these. So, for example, on one day, I, I was participating participating in an anti-iraq war demo with my respondents doing a die-in um observing the die-in uh interviewing students about the war examining the campus interviews and student blogs and and all of these things on a single day so it was it was intense and it was really wonderful i yeah look forward to doing more ethnography in the future
1: As I mentioned earlier, that uh, this book will be of uh, tremendous interest not only to students and scholars of Islam and anthropology, but also it provides a a really interesting and fascinating commentary on the status of U.S. higher education. Uh, So, And you argue in the book that U.S. higher education suffers from what you call uh, a flawed pluralism. Uh, I was very intrigued by this uh, description, uh, and I was wondering if you could say more about what you mean by uh, this flawed pluralism that uh, you say u s higher education suffers from
0: yeah this is um this is one of my key interests um we know that diversity is um it- you know, is a common word that we use on campuses. Uh, it is um, something that we're supposed to uh, embody and exemplify in our practices as academics, as administrators, as, as students as well. Um, but, at the, but at the same time, I find fault with the shallowness uh, and with the lack of substantiveness I suppose, uh, in this diversity policy. Let's take the example of alcohol policy, for example. Now, universities... We know um, uh, how much damage alcohol culture does. Uh, So universities do a lot of theater around alcohol and safety, run alcohol education programs. Yet at the same time, many of them accept funds from beer manufacturers for such programs. So these interests remain embedded uh, on campuses. So there are inconsistencies and gaps in campus policy. Let me take another example from a private university. uh, Georgetown is a religious institution, actually has a set of apartments set aside as most housing which I feel is a very very positive thing Um, and the idea is to facilitate uh, a Muslim lifestyle in these apartments Well, for for many Muslim students, they're a sort of haven away from the rather self-conscious hedonism of student culture. And I really focus on that in my book as well, the hedonism um, of student culture. Now, in dorms, the matter of opposite sex overnight guests is a very gray area. And gray areas are common also in alcohol policy, though Georgetown University does not permit. Um, cohabitation in undergraduate housing, these policies on overnight guests tend to be something that's really on paper. And I heard the same thing at a meeting of RAs at Oklahoma State, for example. You know, things like, just shut the door and keep it down, okay? So the rule is something that is there, but it's not enforced. Now, if you are a religious Muslim woman and your roomie's having sex with her boyfriend in the room, this is pretty problematic stuff. Your reputation is at risk as well. So in the book, I mention Amira, my, one of my respondents, Pakistani-American sophomore, whose very protective father discovered that her freshman roommate had a boyfriend. And he became very upset about her, you know, living on campus in in this um, room with this girl who had a boyfriend. Would the boyfriend be coming and going? Would, the, would his daughter be at risk? And this, uh, this kind of stuff. So he demanded that she um, ban the boyfriend from the room entirely or just go get a different room. So... Ultimately, when she became a sophomore, uh, Amira chose to live in the Muslim housing apartments. And here uh, she thought it would be, again, a safe haven because the rules prohibited a man and a woman being alone together at any time. Except she did not foresee that two of her roommates in Muslim housing, one Muslim and one non-Muslim, both had boyfriends. Her non-Muslim roommate complained, yeah, I'm not able to spend enough time with my boyfriend during the week. Can can my roommates please just look the other way and he can stay over? Uh, And the other two agreed, but Amira refused. Her apartments, essentially, apartment mates, essentially, turned against her. So here, what you found, what I found, is that the youth cultural norms invaded and occupied this supposedly safe space of Muslim housing. When the roommate demanded that the rules be bent for, you know, this this uh, uh, this um, uh, white non-Muslim young woman's normal sexual expectations. So the pervasive sexual culture really seamlessly integrates itself into this limited space that's allotted by the university to uh, religious Muslims and uh, Amira then found that under her father's surveillance she was cornered by Muslim by by Muslim and non-muslim roommates with, even within this Muslim housing uh, apartment. So there are problems with the way university policy engages with student culture. Student culture becomes what um, Bradley Levinson calls policy as practice so in in other words the way people live and treat each other is de facto policy and this is particularly so in the case of shallow and ineffective tokenistic university policies so to put it. You know, More briefly, I find that diversity in higher education is a lot of theater and not enough substance. I wouldn't say that it is no substance. I would say that it is not enough substance. So consequently, pluralism on campus is flawed. And there are uh, some well-intentioned individuals working in the system, um, but uh, the system doesn't allow for them to be particularly effective. On the one hand, students are slotted into particular identity groups due to the academic and administrative structures of higher education, but with not enough interrogation of these structures, how, how, how far do these the, these identity uh, slottings work? How far do they not work? What do they mean to people? What do they not mean to people? And uh, uh, while minority students are offered things like affirmative action quotas, funding for student organizations, marginalized voices are insufficiently present in these kinds of policy decisions. So the dominant majority remains the backdrop and the audience of diversity related policy. And I actually talk about this in a new article that I'm writing right now that is about um, a cultural commodification uh, in terms of um, South Asian students, uh, cultural performances and how uh, m- dominant majority students remain the audience of this diversity work. So, Um, So universities, um, um, I I argue, feel, have a very shallow uh, and unsubstantive approach to diversity.
1: The the bulk of your book uh, focuses on three major questions or issues uh, as they play out in the lives of uh, female Muslim students on campus. Uh, Alcohol culture, clothing and modesty, and sexual and gender relations. Why did you center your book on these three particular themes?
0: Yeah, I, I really foresaw this question. Um, and I particularly foresaw people, um, you know, becoming uh, a little bit upset about this and saying, why do you, does everybody have to talk about Muslim women in relation to, uh, very sensational ideas, you know, clothes and sex and alcohol, you know, these kinds of things. But, um, much to my surprise, these three, themes emerged from the ethnographic data directly, I wasn't actually looking for them. Uh, in 2004, I remember I was sitting at, at a cozy in, in Arlington puzzling over pages and pages of interview transcripts and struggling to figure out how to analyze all of this, what box to put it in, what lenses worked best for the data scenery. And I know I was probably subconsciously trying to bring my analysis in line with the literature. But when I really immersed myself in the interview transcripts, and you know, you only have to have time to do this, I hit upon the frequency with which drinking, uh, first of all, and um, dating, sex, uh, sexuality, and clothes and hijab were mentioned by my respondents. So when I found this, I thought, Why don't I track the same issues that I'm trying to track, identity, religion, stigma, pluralism, by means of these vehicles? So I tried it, and it worked, I think, incredibly well. Not only that, that, but piggybacking off of these tropes or activities, uh, I feel, helped preserve... um, the puristic unity of social life. So instead of breaking them up into, okay, now I'm doing religion and now I'm doing sexuality and now I'm doing academics because, you know, life doesn't really work like that. Which We may try to compartmentalize as much as we want, but it doesn't really work like that. The other thing was, um, you know, while I was, uh, trying to organize these themes, I was also overwhelmed, frankly, by the quantity of data. This is, um, for an ethnography, this was probably a fairly large number of primary respondents, 26 young women, uh, while at the same time observing the entire campus and the entire MSA and so on. So it was it was pretty, it was a lot of data. And I was anxious that I uh, would not be mm, true to the respondents' voices, um, now, initially, frankly, I was more interested in interfaith relations on campus, so the data took me in a different, in, in a different direction, and taking my cue from the voices of my respondents vis-a-vis their concerns uh, helped keep me anchored to a certain kind of research integrity. At the same time, I'm very conscious of the fact that research writing is a very much uh, a process of construction by the researcher.
1: Okay, so let us take these uh, three issues uh, one by one, uh, beginning with alcohol culture. And uh, your chapter on alcohol culture is incredibly nuanced and really multi-layered. And you show in this chapter that... Uh, there is no one way, there is no singular way in which uh, female Muslim students navigate alcohol culture on campus, uh, but, right. you, but you nonetheless identify certain major paradigms or certain major ways in which this negotiation uh, takes place. Uh, so I was wondering if you could describe some of these uh, paradigms, some of these ways in which uh, alcohol culture is negotiated uh, by female American uh, Muslim students, and also the larger question of what is at stake for a female Muslim undergraduate's Relationship to the broader uh, alcohol culture in terms of how it is imagined, presented, and contended by uh, by people on campus and off campus.
0: I'm glad, uh, Shirley, that you call it a multi-layered chapter. It tells me you're really uh, that a reader was really able to access the different layers and approaches that I was working uh, to unify there. And I love that chapter as well because it really. Uh, to me, encapsulates many of the themes that I'm uh, that I'm uh, working to bring across um, in a way that's, um, I think, accessible to um, both Muslims and uh, majority um, uh, group members. So, first, Muslim American women undergraduates they find alcohol culture to be pervasive. It's inescapable. You know, you're on campus, there's drinking. That's one of the first things um, that many students learn uh, about being on campus, and this came from Muslim women who never drank, and it came from Muslim women who drank and partied regularly. So even the women who drank and partied pretty regularly were sort of self-consciously aware of the fact that in order to be normal, one partied. It is something, it, it, it's college, is what they said. It's college. Now, the extent to which um, any research respondent self-identified as religious depended tremendously on how they related to these activities, to drinking, dating, clubbing, clothing, these kinds of things. But alcohol was also the most frequently mentioned obstacle to Muslim non-drinkers being regarded as normal people on campus. So Muslim women were regarded as foreign. They were strange, uncool, uptight. If they a, didn't drink and B weren't cool with alcohol so you have the example of for example Russian uh, in that uh, uh, chapter whom her um, her wife friend approaches her and says hey will you sign this petition uh, that requests um, that we are able to uh, have alcohol on a camp at a campus event and Russian has this moment of you know that she's she's completely conscience-stricken and she's just there's this cognitive dissonance where she really really wants to say no i'm not okay with alcohol on campus i'm muslim i don't drink and i'm i'm not cool with alcohol and on the other hand she's looking at herself through the eyes of her friend and saying wow she's gonna think i am such a weirdo she's gonna think i'm so foreign uptight mean and unfriendly at the same time so she's stuck in this middle place where she's bad as a muslim If she kind of participates in alcohol culture and she's weird, she's a weirdo in the mainstream if she doesn't. So so I found that alcohol, whether it's drinking it or declining it or avoiding it, it, is kind of an expressive principle that illustrates how Muslim Americans walk a tightrope of identity construction. And this, this I uh, really comes home when we're talking about college. I find that it, it's a very useful uh, lens through which to look at um, how alcohol works in American culture.
1: I want to premise my next question on a quote that comes up in your book on uh, page 56, uh, where you quote a student and a, a, the student uh, says something which is rather telling. Uh, and the quote goes as follows. Uh, she, she says weekday academic and weekend social lives become separated. As the people you're going to be cool with in class, you aren't necessarily going to hang out with on the weekend. Uh, I found this a very telling uh, quote because it really in some ways uh, focuses on this bipolarity uh, Mm. that uh, Muslim American women uh, uh, feel in terms of their engagement with the larger campus community. Uh, could you comment a bit on this bipolarity and the sentiment uh, that is captured in this particular uh, quote?
0: And- Absolutely. Uh, it, I mean, this this um, idea gets to the heart of why it is that I focus closely upon social and leisure lives. People have asked me, why don't you focus more upon academic spaces? I do look at them too, but my real interest is in social lives because that's where the real drama of identity uh, um, and sociability takes place. So, For example, uh, Latifa, she was an Arab-American, religious Muslim, and she felt that she had okay non-Muslim friends during the work week. And actually, this is an interesting thing, too, that many of my respondents um, felt that most of their friends, most of their close friends were Muslim, but they really ought to have more non-Muslim friends, that they really ought not to be, uh, you know, to use uh, an overused word, ghettoized. Within uh, the Muslim community, that they, that it was it was part of being a good American was having uh, more non-Muslim friends. While on the other hand, you find that white students don't feel the same sort of pressure to say, "Hey, most of my friends are white. Um, is there a problem here?" Not really, not a big problem. Um, uh, so so Latifa felt that she had okay non-Muslim friends during the work week uh, during while she was attending class, outside class, dorms, etc., But when the weekend rolled around, their paths diverged almost automatically, and they became strangers from Friday night to Monday morning. Actually, probably from Thursday night to Monday morning, because Latifa wanted to, you know, relax, maybe watch a movie with friends, have dinner, uh, go to Jum'a, and most of her non-Muslim friends couldn't wait to get drunk, most of them. Now, this is not to say that Muslims didn't drink. Some did. But the funny thing was that even Yasmin was very conscious of, like I said earlier, conforming to a college student persona. You know, uh, as she described it, and I, I talk about this in the alcohol chapter, how she described being a college student as you got to go crazy. For, um, for Heather, for Fatima, Latifa, respondents like them, this meant that they ended up in a de facto enclave. Over the weekend, which is arguably when social emotional connections are most cemented. So, so definitely this, uh, sort of bifurcation between the weekday academic life and the weekend social life, uh, is, is very telling. It's very, um, um uh, speaks a lot to many of my Muslim, uh, respondents.
1: Okay, let us uh, now move to talking about uh, the hijab and its symbolism as a marker of Muslim distinction on campus. And you show in your, uh, in your chapter uh, that there are a particular set of challenges that are confronted by students, both those who do wear the hijab and those who don't wear the hijab yeah. uh, in their academic and, and social lives. Uh, could you uh, talk a bit about some of these challenges uh, that you describe and analyze uh, in your
0: book? Definitely, you know, hijab is pretty inescapable, right? If you 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 have you've, you've got you want to talk about Islam, you've got a picture of a hijabi woman. Uh, you want to talk about diversity, you've got a picture of a hijabi woman. Um, and as a Muslim, if you wear it, um, you stick out. You're a representative of. You know, really the global Muslim, and you had better be prepared, as my respondents found, to speak authoritatively on Palestine, on Pakistan, on the French ban, on Myanmar, everything that uh, is happening uh, to Muslims in the world. But if you don't wear it, no, you're not so much under pressure to be a representative, but on the other hand, you're probably, you know, just a nominal Muslim, and you're. You know, uh, the majority is likely to look at you as you know you're more like us. You're more like uh, secularized. Your religious identity is not so very overpowering. Um, uh, as as uh, and and again, again, the stereotype goes in as it is for for Muslims. Um, so. Um, so a non-hijab wearer is seen as kind of less representatives of Muslims, but on the bright side, she can also speak more convincingly of Muslims. So as a representative, she is more effective, but she doesn't appear to be a representative because she's seen as more secular. She's less religious. She's seen as more, less faithful. She's more external to the Muslim collective, um. Again, whatever happens in the world that involves Muslims, hijab wearers are instantly at risk of physical and verbal attacks. This is, you know, (laughs) kind of becoming very timeless now. I, I, I mention in the book also my own, You know, very shame faced relief on September twelfth in the subway in DC. You know, riding by the Pentagon, that I was, you know, no longer a hijabi. That I was with a, you know, with a white guy with my white husband. Um, And it really brings out the foreignness, the alienness that Islam still seems to embody for many Americans to this day. You know, academics. Uh, some academics who are familiar with my work will actually introduce me after, you know, talking about my work and getting to know me and so on. After that, will introduce me as a scholar. Oh, she studies Muslim Middle Eastern students. This is, you know, um, the foreignness of Islam uh, is, uh, you know, know, it's hard work uh, to work against it. And hijab serves as that handy shorthand, of difference and diversity. So, so if you've got a self-consciously multicultural college and it's got, um, brochures, you'll have a bunch of blonde students. You'll have a black student, an Asian, a hijabi. And, you know, the job of, uh, promoting college diversity is done.
1: Okay. Let us, uh, move to the third, uh, theme of your book, which is gender and uh, sexual relations on campus. And, uh, in, in your discussion on this particular theme, uh, you argue that uh, female Muslim students on campus constantly navigate uh, the space and negotiate the tension between what you call normalcy and difference. Uh, so can you explain a bit uh, what you mean by the categories of normal and different and how they connect with your larger argument as part of this discussion on gender and sexual relations on campus?
0: yeah, normal and different are, are really key, um, um, concepts in my book. And, um, I, I guess part of the reason I use normal and different is because it is so hard to use terminology. You know, like you're talking about Muslims. What are you going to t- call them? Are you going to call people conservative Muslims, fundamentalist Muslims, liberal Muslims? There are all kinds of problems with every type of uh, terminology. So then I chose, you know, the, the, messiest, <laughs> the messiest terms possible, being normal and being different. Um, but I bring them out through uh, this... Uh, ethnographic data. so I found that Muslim American uh, women students are constantly working to be normal, and that this normalcy is in the context of majority Americanness, cultural, Americanness, Anglo Christian norms, notions of what's normal within uh, the majority. So at times, Muslim American women are seen playing down difference. And what is difference? Difference means being Muslim, being ethnic, being racialized. So often, Muslim women play down also their religiosity and self silence even on matters of religion in order to blend in. So, as an example, uh, now you, you talked about uh, gender and sexual dynamics. Uh, for example, women who believed uh, that, um, uh, who practiced premarital chastity, they didn't usually come right out and tell their friends, hey, I don't have a boyfriend. I do not intend to have one the way you would, or, or anything so strong as that. So, Myra, my Pakistani uh, American sophomore, just veiled the fact that she had no love life uh, by not leaking pertinent details. So she said, I so remember she said, I'm not going to explain all these details to people as in to non-Muslim people. I'll just be like, yep, never had a boyfriend. So this image of a poor little girl who's never had a boyfriend was something that her uh, majority friends could understand and sympathize with. But by saying, also by saying so little, she preserved this appearance of being normal. The hint is, I could have a real boyfriend uh, instead of saying I would choose not to. And at the same time, it preserved her from um, uh, this attempt to approximate cultural uh, cultural assimilation. So many Muslim women played down their difference. The majority, but I was interested to find that Muslim Americans also, and particularly in this matter of gender and sexuality, also often played up being different in American society. When it came to drinking, for example, many played it down. Many would say, "Yeah, I'll just have an orange juice." Would not make a big statement about about alcohol. In, in, in terms of clothing, many of them also worked to uh, be more normal. But when it came to gender and sexuality, uh-uh, no. Here, there was more of a, um, um, a, a playing up of being different from the majority. So the idea is, okay, you expect me uh, to embody a Muslim stereotype. Here you go. Here's a Muslim stereotype. Unless I embody the stereotype, you wouldn't recognize me. You've got to stand up and be counted as a member of your population group. And if you're not recognized, you're not going to be counted. Um, and you've on campus, you've got a sort of a, uh, a competitive marketplace of ideas, right? And you have any number of causes, organizations, ideas, interests floating around. And here, a consistent minority image is just quicker, simpler and much more memorable than a complex, shifting, diverse one, even if it's not a real image. So most Muslim um, uh, male and female students, except for a few commuters, or especially conservative ones, were pretty good friends with each other. They they had uh, a lot of opposite-sex friends, and they socialized freely. Uh, they worked together in the MSA. But uh, my uh, Somali-American uh, respondent, Nthasar, for example, noticed that uh, when an official Muslim student association event was being put on, and especially a more religious one, a lecture or some such, frequently the men adopted this distant, remote attitude of winning the women, acting like they weren't there, as if they were extremely conservative and as if they lived very sex-segregated lives, even though in their, in their private lives they were good friends with these young women. So part of this, of course, is fitting the identity categories for that imagined Muslim, that's omnipresent in the media and popular culture, and Entesar has some wonderful uh, analysis of this that I build upon. But part of this is also to avoid identity erosion in secular hedonistic campus culture. So Entesar says, you know, Muslim students, we're on campus, we're at this age, we're uh, we're young, and we're really afraid of becoming too quote-unquote, normal, too culturally assimilated. And um, so many Muslim, religious Muslims play up those religious stereotypes kind of to draw protective cultural boundaries around themselves. Now, I'm, I'm very conscious of uh, of something also as a parent of a uh, a girl who's growing up. She's half-white. She could easily culturally assimilate if she wanted to. Uh, and so I'm beginning to wonder uh, about my own, you know, rather, you know, kind of left-leaning, liberal, uh, um, multicultural um, uh, approach to um, to religion and wondering if I do need to make more um, mnemonic devices, right, Sem- semiotic mediators for her. You know, I don't wear hijab. She doesn't wear hijab. I don't require hijab. Are some of these things actually helpful in reinforcing uh, spiritual states as you negotiate youth cultural peer pressure? Uh, is are some of these things useful um, for for young Muslims growing up uh, in in the United States?
1: Okay, let us uh, focus a bit on the specific issue of dating. And uh, you show in your discussion on this question that there is a whole spectrum of views and attitudes that can, yeah. that are found among uh, Muslim female students on this question. And you also show that not only is there a great deal of fuzziness surrounding defining what dating is, yeah. but there is also a great deal of fuzziness surrounding the language around dating. And I want to quote for our listeners a particular uh, uh, quote that comes up in your book, which is rather humorous, but also really <laughs> cap- captures this ambiguity and this fuzziness that you that you analyze and describe, and this quote is on page 140 and goes as follows. You say that the less religious Muslims were, after all, dating, and the somewhat religious Muslims were engaged in Muslim dating. Real Muslims pseudo-dated, and pseudo-Muslims really dated, end of quote. (laughs) So I this, I found this really fascinating moment in the book, and I was wondering if you could say more on how this conceptual ambiguity surrounding what dating is or defining dating uh, gets mapped onto the discourse or language uh, about dating in terms of how it's discussed and talked about.
0: That's right. It's funny, isn't it? And you know what's what's funny also, even about the um, the very word dating is that. Um, it's not necessarily very descriptive of what's happening in campus culture right now we're talking more about a hookup culture as opposed to dating culture um so uh so going to the, the to the uh to the muslims uh muslim dating issue the pseudo muslims the one who the ones who uh were to my more conservative respondents you know they're they're naughty, they're overly liberal they're more culturally assimilated in the majority and they're really engaging in full-fledged casual dating and as for the, the kind of religious Muslims, they're in this borderland of Muslim dating. So what does that mean? A couple, you know, talks a lot, hangs out a lot together. They don't really do anything sexually as far as the public is concerned. But they don't even frame their relationship as dating because dating, what is dating? That is what Americans do. We are different. Muslims talk, quote unquote, talk. And this connects directly to, again, what I was talking about earlier, about immigrant fears of cultural assimilation. So even uh, Neelam, who was a very liberal uh, Bangladeshi-American respondent, she said, I- in my community, people talk about couples who are dating as, oh, they're talking. So talking serves as the cover story for what is at the very least, serious flirtation and usually much more and maybe, maybe will result in marriage, right? Describing it as talking instead of dating actually may protect it from high pressure to get married but for religious Muslims like Heather uh, who talked about the pseudo-dating thing she, um, for, for them marriage really is uh, the unspoken goal but of course it may not happen and so to people like Heather, this Muslim dating thing, this talking thing, it's risky business. It puts a young woman's reputation at risk. Because, as Heather said, something might happen. For instance, she might lose her reputation. They might end up having sex. She loses her virginity. So her future prospects are affected, and so on and so forth. So for young Muslim-American women, the stakes are high. And the grapevine, the Muslim-American grapevine, is is a pretty active one. They know that college is probably an opportune time to find a mate. Um, but how are they supposed to? when? Talking or pseudo dating is sort of naughty and dating is beyond the pale. Well, the conservative answer from some of my more conservative Muslim respondents was, well, you sit and wait. Some nice boy will have his parents contact yours. But, you know, Fatima, you know, who was um, 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 less conservative said, well, this, this doesn't happen for everyone. And my convert respondent said, "Hey, we don't even have the necessary networks for this to happen easily. We, our parents aren't going to be fielding uh, you know suitors uh, um, and, and requests to uh, for your daughter's hand. That's not going to happen for us." So the theory, I say, the theory of our Muslim-American courtship is in a very underdeveloped. State. Also, think of Muslim American dating as courtship as falling on a continuum, and I've talked about this continuum on I think each of uh, these chapters. I talk about um, the, um, for example, um, in relation to modesty, in relation to clothing, uh, and in terms of sexuality, for example, you you've got the very conservative Muslim Americans on the one end who have a bare minimum of contact with the opposite sex. And then you've got your, you know, middle to upper class conservative Muslim Americans who are, you know, relatively gen- moderate on gendered behavior if it is, so that it doesn't adversely affect socioeconomic activities and so on. And then you've got hijab. Um, uh, and, and modest clothing, which actually symbolise a highly mobile form of chastity, and enable uh, Muslim women's full kind of socio economic uh, participation. And then you have um, um, so a, a falling at various places on this continuum, arranged marriage, which you know works to prevent premarital sex, as well as ensuring endogamy and the integrity of the uh, extended family. Now, as for very religiously liberal Muslim Americans, you know, they can be relatively indistinguishable in their sexual behavior for most of, you know, their majority uh, compatriots. So there is a range again and a continuum of Muslim liberal sexuality. So developing any Muslim American position on this uh, sexual continuum is a complex matter. Um, And this means... At the same time, that to socialize with the opposite sex and how publicly is a very tricky question for Muslim-American youth. It is much more tricky, of course, for Muslim-American women. You could overdo it. You would be called slutty. Uh, you might not ever get married within the community. You could, um, on the other hand, you could be such a good girl that the guys think you're uptight, you're too religious to marry, uh, and you never end up um establishing a relationship with anybody enough to get married so so they're puzzling over just how normal american can i be how muslim and different should i be and when and this this keeps shifting depending on where you are are you at juma are you at the club are you at um you know at a party where are you and what sorts of behaviors are okay and to what extent and and many of them end up um you know, uh, erring in various ways and paying for uh, those mistakes. I remember um, one young woman said to me, uh, these, um, these women are, um, they, they live um, American lives and they pay in Pakistani consequences. Right. So she was talking about Pakistani Americans. She said they live American lives and they pay Pakistani consequences. So those, so for many of them, this is the problem that they're, still in that in-between space between normal and different.
1: Uh, Shavana, as the time for our conversation is uh, uh, approaching its uh, end, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners what are you working on uh, these days and what are some of the uh, future projects that we can expect to read and and learn from you uh, in the coming uh, days, months and years?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, Well, this ethnographic data is Hard to let go of it's very rich, and I probably still have another book or two in it, but as you know, data is you know somewhat perishable and it's I think it's time to move on to um, to other things but before I do that, i'm working on writing up um, two pieces a cha- cha- two or three pieces a chapter, maybe two articles about what I referred to earlier, the cultural commodification of ethnic culture among second generation immigrant youth on campus, uh, but also about the stigma associated with women dancing in public among some, some Muslims. So, so to put it baldly, I guess one focuses on culture and the other on religiosity. And I'd like to follow that cultural um, trail a little further in further research and further data collection. But I'd also like to pick up some recent research I've done on higher education in Pakistan. I've been uh, researching neoliberal reforms in higher education uh, as well as the real-life kind of impact of top-down change on the lives and work of Pakistani women faculty. I've already done a pilot study on this, and I've worked the data into a couple of conference paper, but I'm really hoping uh, to focus more closely on this very soon.
1: Muslim American Woman on Campus, Undergraduate Social Life and Identity by Shabana Mir, published by the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in 2014, and winner of the Outstanding Book Award, National Association for Ethnic Studies. Uh, Shabana, thank you so much for your time, for this conversation, uh, for your detailed and thought-provoking answers. And I really enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed reading your book and learning from it. And I'm sure our listeners will also agree uh, that this was a, a... really profitable uh, conversation Uh, so thank you so much for your
0: time thank you Sherly I really enjoyed being here and you um, asked such wonderful questions it really helped me also think more uh, about the book thank
1: you very much so this was my conversation with Dr. Shaban Amir about her important new book Muslim American Woman on Campus Undergraduate Social Life and Identity published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014 (laughs) Thank you very much for listening, and please join us next time for another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Thank you, take care, and stay well.